Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we want to uh, acknowledge that you're present this morning in our midst as we have gathered as your people to worship. And we want to uh, ask you to be at work in us. Lord, as we open the scriptures and, and talk about just this key subject this morning, we pray that you would uh, open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to your truth and help us see the impact it should have on how we live our lives for you. Um, pray that you would make this uh, message live by the power of your spirit this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, everybody wants to claim Jesus as their supporter. It really doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum, whether you're uh, liberal or conservative. Uh, you like Jesus. You may think differently about him. Whether you're uh, a Republican or Democrat, everybody wants to say Jesus is on their side. And everybody who wants Jesus as a supporter think that, thinks that what they believe about Jesus and what Jesus was about is what they think he was about. The problem is, when you begin to ask him what Jesus was about, what the core of his message was, what his central teaching was, it starts to get a little vague. In fact, uh, I want you to try to answer that question to yourself right now. If I asked you what was the core of Jesus' teaching, what would you say? How would you answer that, uh, that question? Well, some people might say love, and that's important. Jesus talks about that all the time. In Mark 12, he says the, the, the greatest command is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then to love people as yourself. So lots of people would say love, but I might disagree. I'm not sure that is the core of his message. I mean, if Jesus just went around talking about love, I'm not sure the Romans would have crucified him. In fact, I think they might have liked him. This idea of turning the other cheek, uh, it makes for good, uh, good crowd control when you're oppressing a people. I don't think it would have gotten killed. You know, somebody might say, well, okay, maybe it's forgiveness, right? Jesus came, he died for our sins so we could be forgiven, so we could get to go to heaven and have eternal life. And all that's true. I mean, Jesus does come, die for our sins, believe in him, we get eternal life. Uh, but again, I'm not sure that's the core of his message. I mean, if all he did was go around talking about how to get forgiveness, I'm not sure they would have killed him. I mean, there was something about what Jesus was saying that uh, was agitating people, getting them excited. Uh, the religious people, uh, they were getting nervous. The, the, the Roman leaders, they were getting threatened. Even the demons were in an uproar about what Jesus was saying. So what was his core message? <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I appreciate the participation. You guys are awesome. <laughs> I'm going to get you in a class where we can talk. Um, Mark chapter 1. This, this is, I think, Jesus' core message. This is the first time he goes public. This is the first time he says everything. And it's interesting how he frames his message and what he talks about. 
And when we begin to understand this message, we begin to understand why people reacted so strongly. It says this, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I think the core of Jesus' message was the kingdom of God has come. That's the heart. He is declaring that uh, in him, the kingdom of God is breaking into this world. The word for come near is really an orchard term that, that, that means time has come is really come near, an orchard term. And it, it is picturing fruit that has ripened on the vine and, and it's, it's just ready to, to be picked, all right? It's breaking in. It's picturing somebody who is nine months pregnant and, and they're just ready to explode. The kingdom of God is at hand. What is interesting is Jesus talked about the kingdom all the time. In fact, uh, over 100 times he mentions it, 52 times it's the kingdom of God in the Gospels, 32 times in the book of Matthew he talks about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God are equivalent terms. I mean, you go through the ministry of Jesus and what you discover is he has kingdom on the brain. A lot of his parables deal with the nature of the kingdom. I mean, he's always talking about it. If you wanted to understand Jesus, you had to understand the kingdom. If Jesus was here today and talking to us, I guarantee you he would be talking about the kingdom of God. And I say that because it was his stump speech. It's what he talked about all the time. It was the core of his message. Reality is, though, we talk about it very little. I mean, I became a believer my senior year, just before my senior year of high school. Um, nobody talked to me really about the kingdom of God for a couple of years. It wasn't until I got into theology classes that I, I, I began hearing something about the kingdom of God. It wasn't until I got into seminary that somebody really explained it to me in depth. And even there, it was in a New Testament survey class, and we spent about, oh, three or four lectures on it. And then yeah, and the whole rest of seminary, we hardly talked about it at all. When people share Jesus, we talk about Jesus as being your personal Savior. Very seldom do we put Jesus in the context of the kingdom. But what's interesting in the New Testament, you never see Jesus presented outside the context of the kingdom. It's always there. We'll see how in a few moments. Gordon Fee, who is uh, a New Testament scholar, has written one of my favorite books, uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, teaches, uh, was teaching at Regent College. And in a lecture at Regent College, he, he makes this statement. He says, you cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. You are a zero on Jesus if you don't understand this term. Now, that should cause a reaction in you, okay? Because if you understand the kingdom and that's something you're familiar with, you're going, yeah, that, 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 that makes total sense to me. If you've never heard the kingdom, you should be pretty defensive right now, right? Because you're saying, well, wait a second, I know Jesus, I have a relationship with Jesus, I've been a Christian for years, I have a clue about the kingdom, but I've been a Christian for years. And Fee is saying, no, you, you don't really understand Jesus if you don't understand the kingdom. No, he goes on 
I mean, this is pretty radical stuff. He says, I'm sorry to say it that strongly, but this is the great failure of evangelical Christianity. We have had Jesus without the kingdom of God, and therefore we have literally done Jesus in. He's saying if you don't understand the kingdom, the kingdom is the context in which we see Jesus. Without that context, without that background, without that understanding, Jesus really doesn't make sense. I I spent a little time. I thought, you know, that's kind of a radical statement. I'm going to think this through. What do we miss if we don't understand the kingdom? So I, I, I came up with a list. This is not exhaustive. This is just things that came to my mind. What happens when we don't understand the kingdom? First of all, we distort the gospel. We shrink it and make it less than it is. If you don't agree with all these, I want you to wrestle with that thought until the end of the message because when we get there, I think some of this will make more sense. Second, if we don't have the kingdom, we miss the larger picture of why Jesus came and why he died and even who he is. We don't have the kingdom, we miss the big story of the Bible. Because really, the, the, the grand story of the Bible is a kingdom story, and if you take the kingdom out, it's hard to understand the story. Not only that, we miss the grand story of the universe, because the whole story of the universe, what God is doing from the beginning of the time to the end of the time, all relates to his kingdom. We take kingdom out, we don't understand that. Without the kingdom, our faith simply becomes about us. Getting forgiveness and getting a ticket to heaven, and getting out of here before the world's destroyed. Without the kingdom, our our faith becomes private and individual, when it's really so much more than that. Without the kingdom, Christianity becomes simply a religion of personal benefit. And that is oftentimes how we sell it in our culture. We sell Jesus as the Savior who can transform your life, but we really do it in the context of it's good for you. He'll give you peace. He'll give you forgiveness. He'll give you, he'll make you happy. It's almost irrelevant whether it's true or not. It's pragmatic. Take Jesus because he works. Without the kingdom, Jesus becomes a bit of an, just a bit of an add-on to our life in order to make us happy. Without the kingdom, we misunderstand our calling in life and our role in the culture and the world. Not having the kingdom reduces our mission to simply getting people to pray a prayer to make Jesus their personal Savior, when our mission is really so much more than that. Without the kingdom, our faith becomes consumer-driven. We get focused on what will entertain us and make us feel good and give us a great experience, because it's really about us. Take out the kingdom and it creates a sacred, secular view of life. In other words, there's some things that are spiritual, but most things aren't. And if it's not spiritual, they don't matter. And thus, most of our life, our work, our play, just everyday life becomes irrelevant because the only thing that matters is the spiritual side. That the kingdom causes us to create a false expectation about what the Christian life is like and what life should be like in general. The kingdom makes all the difference in the world. In another lecture, Gordon Fee said, if you miss the kingdom, you miss everything. 
And in that particular class, it was a New Testament survey class, he repeated that statement seven times because he wanted his students to get it. You cannot understand your faith. You cannot understand Jesus. You cannot understand what this whole thing Christianity is about without understanding the notion of the kingdom. And I agree with him. I think he's right. So we're doing a series, a three-week series, called See the Kingdom. Um, And we want this series to be a bit of an aha moment for people. We found a little video that kind of portrays what we want to happen to you. This is a a video of a, a, a little baby getting glasses for the first time. This is what we want to happen to you. Hi. Hi, Piper. How are you? Hi, can you see? Can you see? Yeah. Hi, Piper. Hi. Hi, Can you see? <laughs> I think she can. <laughs> Hi, Hi. You look so cute. Hey. <laughs> so you struggle a little bit to get them on, and then it's, wow. Okay. So we're at the struggle bit, all right? Maybe the wow will come later. (laughs) What we're going to do this morning is I want to talk about the importance of the kingdom in Scripture and show you how much it is there, even though we miss it most of the time. Then I want to talk about what the kingdom is, all right? And then I want to talk about when it comes and finally draw out a couple of implications. That's what we'll do this morning. Um, You say, well, Nick, I don't get this whole kingdom bit. I mean, I've read my New Testament just doesn't seem like it's mentioned that much. And the truth is, it's mentioned all the time. Look with me at Luke chapter 4. This is interesting because Paul, uh, Luke, uh, Jesus, somebody here is... <laughs> <laughs> Jesus is talking about <laughs> uh, why he was sent, the reason he came, all right? And this is interesting, but he said, I must proclaim the good news. He has been doing miracles and healing people in this village, and he's moving to the next village, and they don't want him to go. They're saying, no, 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 stay here. And he says, no, no, I can't. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom. That word good news means uh, gospel. So the gospel of the kingdom of God to other towns also. Why? Because that is why I was sent. So this notion of the kingdom, proclaim the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, this is not peripheral stuff to Jesus. This is at the core of why he came. All right? Chapter 10 in Matthew 7 and 8, he is sending out his, his apostles, all right? Kind of extending his ministry. And it's interesting what he tells them. He says, as you go, proclaim this message. Okay, this is the core of it. The kingdom of heaven, and by the way, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are equivalent terms. You'll see kingdom of heaven in the gospel of Matthew because it's written to the Jewish people. And it, heaven is a euphemism for God because they didn't like to use the word God out of respect. So he, he, he talks about kingdom of heaven. So he says the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God has come near. Same message, it's at hand, it's ripe. And then he tells them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy and drive out demons. You see, the kingdom is breaking in and when the kingdom breaks in, man, literally all hell breaks loose. (laughs) 
because God's reign is coming to bear. So people are getting healed and demons are being cast out and leprosy is getting healed and the blind see. But they're about the kingdom of God. That's the message. You say, well, Nick, that was, that was true during, dur- during the time of Jesus. But, you know, Jesus offered the kingdom to the Jewish people and they rejected it, so it got postponed. So you see Jesus talk about the kingdom all the time but then you don't see it in Acts or the rest of the New Testament. And I would beg to differ. Not only does Jesus talk about the kingdom all the time, if you go in the book of Acts, what you discover is the early church talked about the kingdom all the time. In fact, they always put Jesus in the context of the kingdom. Look at Acts 1.3. This is Jesus talking to his disciples after he's died and been resurrected. He has 40 days to spend with them, right? This is the last time he gets to be with them. He's preparing them to go on this mission to change the world. He's going to focus his words and his teaching on what is most critical and most important. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. 40 days. And he spoke about the kingdom of God. Well, I guess it didn't stop. I guess the kingdom of God is still relevant. I mean, Jesus spends his whole time preparing them to go on his mission by talking about the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what they do. Acts chapter 8. This is Philip. Uh, Persecution has hit the church in Jerusalem. They're scattering. And this is the story of Philip sharing uh, with somebody who Jesus is. But notice how he talks about Jesus. When they believed Philip as he proclaimed, what's he talking about? The good news or the gospel of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Those two are always going together. That's how they presented who Jesus was in the context of the kingdom. The name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And if you want to see how they talked about Jesus, Acts chapter 17 is an interesting place to go. Because in verse 6, Paul and Silas have been in Thessalonica. They've been talking about Jesus and proclaiming the gospel. But notice how they've been talking about him. People have been agitated, okay? The religious leaders are reacting. They're trying to find Paul and Silas because they want to kick them out of the town or stone them. They can't find them. So they get a hold of Jason, and Paul and Silas were staying with Jason. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And what's the trouble they're causing? And Jesus has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Now you look at the framework in the New Testament, Jesus has always presented the king. When the Magi show up, what are they looking for? A king. When Herod gets all bent out of shape and tries to kill the little babies, the reason he's doing it, he's threatened because of a king. Uh, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's riding on a donkey. He's fulfilling the prophecy out of Zechariah that talks about your king will come humbly on a donkey. It gets before Pilate, and Pilate asks him, are you a king? And Jesus basically says yes. When he's crucified, what do they put on the top of his cross? Here is Jesus Nazareth, king of the Jews. When you talked about Jesus, you always talked about him in terms of his kingship. In fact, if you go to the end of the books of Acts, Acts chapter 28, 
verses 30 and 31. This is the end of the book of Acts. This is a summary of Paul's ministry. Paul is now in Rome, right? And he's staying in Rome. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and he welcomed all who came to see him. And he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I mean, Paul is functioning as a missionary, sharing the gospel, but it was always the gospel of the kingdom. You see, we've truncated the message of the gospel. So we talk about Jesus as Savior, but we don't talk about Jesus as King and his kingdom. Because if we did, then all of us would understand exactly what the kingdom is, and that would be the backdrop and the context of us living out our faith. But in America, we don't like kings. And we don't understand kingdoms. We're a democracy. We came about because we rebelled against a monarchy. I I mean, individualism and and rebellion and freedom is in our DNA. So we don't like to talk about this king because there's huge implications when you begin talking about Jesus as king. Well, if they talk about the kingdom all the time. Should we be talking about the kingdom? Well, Matthew chapter 24 is fascinating to me. This is not just a temporary thing, this notion of the kingdom. Verse 24, verse 14 says this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You know, if I was to ask you what the gospel is, most of you would take me to 1 Corinthians 15, and you would say this is the gospel that Jesus died was buried, died for us and was buried and was rose again. And that's how we think of the gospel, his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. You pray, you receive him, you get eternal life. Now, is that the gospel? Yes, that's the gospel, but it's a very, very little slice of the gospel. I mean, when Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he wasn't preaching his death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins because he hadn't died yet. But he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom because the gospel of the kingdom is bigger than just that event. Jesus' death and resurrection is foundational to the kingdom, but it's not the whole story of the gospel. There's much more there. We have to put that event of his death and resurrection in the context of a larger understanding of the kingdom. Which gets us to this question. What is the kingdom of God? Now, our problem is when we we, uh, use that phrase, we typically think of a realm, a place. So oftentimes people will say, well, the kingdom of God is heaven. You know, that's why Jesus came. He was telling you how you can get to the kingdom of God, you can get to heaven. Now, there is a future aspect to the kingdom. We'll see that in a bit, but the kingdom of God is not heaven, okay? They get that from Matthew where he uses kingdom of heaven, but that's a euphemism. That's not what the kingdom of God is. Some, some people say, okay, well, then the kingdom of God is the church. And what Jesus did, he came and established the church as his kingdom. Well, people in the church, people who believe are subjects of the king, okay, but they're not the kingdom. Some people say, well, the kingdom is God's justice coming in the world. Well, if you believe in the kingdom, you want to see God's justice coming in the world, but that's really not the kingdom either. Some people say, no, the the kingdom isn't there or here where you can touch it. It's within you, right? Luke chapter 17, Jesus says, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, the kingdom kingdom is within you. Except the Greek there should really be translated among you because the Pharisees, uh, they were opposing Jesus. They didn't have the kingdom within them. 
They had the kingdom among them right there because Jesus, the king, was in their midst. So it is the kingdom. It's not a geographical location. It's not a realm. The kingdom, the word for kingdom in the New Testament is the Greek word basilia. And what that word means is literally rule or reign. It speaks of the notion of authority. If I have authority and exercise my authority, I might exercise it in a realm. That's why we think of kingdom as a realm. But that's really not the heart of kingdom. There's one place in the New Testament um, where Jesus is telling a story about a man who goes to another country to receive a kingdom. And what he's receiving is not a new realm to rule, but he's receiving the authority to rule the place that he's in. So kingdom is this notion of rule and reign and authority. The best place to see what kingdom is, is I think, is in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. You know, we pray this prayer. In the midst of the prayer, we're supposed to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And your kingdom come and your will be done is a parallelism. In other words, they're making the same statement. So your will will being done is the same as God's kingdom coming. What, what is he saying? He's saying, when your rule, when your authority, when it comes to fruition, when your will is done in a location, then your kingdom has come. Now in heaven, your will is done all the time. But we want your will to be done here on earth. We want your kingdom, the up there, to come down here. We want your, your, your will to be done in this realm. And when, it, when your dominion becomes operative, when your will becomes lived out, when your grace, your truth, your, your generosity, your compassion becomes lived out, then your kingdom is coming. All of us have our kingdoms. One of my kingdoms in my world is my garage. Okay? I don't have very many kingdoms in my life. I have none in my house, but I do have one in my garage. Okay? Because the house is Barb's kingdom. The garage is my kingdom. And the reason it's my kingdom is because my rules, my will, my authority gets fulfilled in my garage. And I have all the tools lined up the way I want. I could keep all the junk I want in there. Barb can't go in there. She can't touch anything. If she does, she's... She, she's in trouble because she's invaded my kingdom. Okay? That's the notion. The sphere of control is where your kingdom is manifest. That's the kingdom. So we, we got a definition here. God's kingdom is God's rule and reign, his agenda, his sphere of control where his will is done. Now that's really abstract. And the truth is, is when you go through the New Testament, what you discover is that that kingdom gets manifested in different ways through the course of history. So what I want to do, we've talked about how important the kingdom is, we've talked about what the kingdom is, I want to talk about when the kingdom is, because this is what gets confusing. And this was confusing for the people of Jesus' day. All right, So I'm going to put up a diagram here from a a book by George Ladd, who's a great theologian. He wrote a book, The Gospel of the Kingdom. If you want to read something on the kingdom that's awesome, that's the book to read. But he came up with this little diagram that shows how the kingdom comes in our world. All right? And what you have here, the C stands for creation. That's the beginning of time. And there's really two ages to creation. There's this age, and then there's the age to come. 
the age to come is where the kingdom of God is fully manifested in all its glory. It comes in its fullness. It's, uh, we talk about it as heaven, but heaven is actually here on earth because of the new heaven, the new world. It's when everything is remade and everything is restored and God's will is done in every arena of life. There are no more tears. There's no more sin. There's no more death. Everything is the way God wants it to be. That's the age to come, all right? But we don't live in the age to come. We live in this age, right? And in this age, sin is a reality and death is reality. And who's the prince and the power of the air in our age? Satan. He's the god of this age, all right? So this age and the age to come are intention. Where does the, the change come? Where, where do we go from this age to the age to come? Parousia is just a word that means appearing, and it's the way we refer to the second coming of Christ. So when Jesus comes back, he inaugurates in full the age to come. All right? Now, the Jewish people, they only understood this age and the age to come being divided by the coming of the Messiah or the coming of God into their midst. All right? And they, there wasn't much nuance about it. They understood that when God came, he was going to establish his kingdom. And for the Jews of Jesus' time, that meant he was going to throw out the Romans, right? Because they were living under the oppression of the Romans. And, and God was going to set up a Davidic king, the Messiah, and he was going to rule in justice. And, and this utopian age would come where the lion lays down with the lamb and everything would be right. And that's what they were expecting, right? The age to come. But it doesn't unfold that way, does it? In fact, when you begin to read the whole New Testament, you begin to find out that it unfolds very differently than we expect. Jesus comes on the scene right about here before his resurrection. And he says, guess what? The kingdom's at hand. The kingdom's come. And the Jews are going, wait a second. The Romans are still ruling. We're still oppressed. You're not in charge that we can see. How can you say that the kingdom is here? And Jesus is saying, oh, you misunderstood. You see, your enemy really isn't the Romans. Your enemy isn't uh, on the natural level. There is a supernatural enemy, Satan. And when God's kingdom comes, that's where the conflict is taking place. I'm breaking in. I'm coming into the midst of the rebellion, right? Because there was creation in the fall and we rebelled. I'm coming in the midst of the rebellion to reestablish my kingdom on earth. But right now it hasn't come on its fullness, in its fullness. Well, Jesus goes and dies on the cross. Now, why does Jesus die on the cross? Well, when Jesus dies on the cross, that's the, the focal point of where the real battle for the kingdom takes place because on the cross, Jesus not only dies to save us from our sins, he does that, he's paying for sin, but there's so much more going on there. Jesus dies on the cross to do away with sin, to defeat all evil, to defeat Satan, and to conquer death. Jesus dies on the cross to bring about cosmic renewal. So he's laying this foundation. Now it's not going to take place completely right then. The kingdom doesn't come in its fullness right then, but the victory's won. It's kind of like the invasion on D-Day in World War II. The Allies invade, you know, uh, um, and the war basically is over. Hitler has lost the war. The Germans and the Americans the English, the French, everybody won the war on D-Day, right? But the war's not over, is it? There's this mop-up operation. When they're still, that's this age right here. 
So the kingdom is actually inaugurated at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Satan is defeated, but not completely, right? He's still, still active, even though he's doomed. Then at the parousia, the second coming, what happens? Well, at, when Jesus comes back, there's a resurrection. A resurrection of who? Believers. Revelation 20 says, we then reign with Jesus for a thousand years. And that during that time, Satan is bound. Then at the end of that time, Satan is loosed. You can read about this in Revelation chapter 20. He is loosed and there's another rebellion and that is put down. And then there's a judgment. And at that second judgment, or, or at that judgment, there is a second resurrection. Here, believers were resurrected, all those who know Jesus. In this resurrection, unbelievers, everyone is resurrected. And there's this judgment. And Satan is thrown, destroyed, into the lake of the fire. And now the new heavens and new earth, the restored heavens, the restored earth, because there's continuity between them, come and the kingdom comes in its fullness. Does that make sense? So it's a little more complicated. Now, if you read, through, you, you don't understand all this until you get to the end of the story in Revelation chapter 20. If you're reading along, this is what's so hard for the Jews. They say, wait a second, you're supposed to set up your kingdom when you're coming, and you're not setting it up the way we expected. And that was the tension. But Jesus says, no, the kingdom's here. It's just not the way you expected it to be. And what you discover in the New Testament is that the kingdom is both present and future. Sometimes it's talked about being present uh, um, it's in your midst. Jesus says, I'm casting out demons because the kingdom has come. Sometimes it's future. There's this fullness of the kingdom where I'm going to sit down in the great banquet table and, and, and have a drink with my disciples. He talks about that. That's future. But we live in between. We live in the now and the not yet. We're part of the kingdom, but the kingdom hasn't come in its fullness. So in a sense, we get glimpses. Every once in a while, we taste the kingdom, we see the kingdom, and it breaks in. So you say, okay, Nick, uh, that's very interesting. But why is this so important? By the way, Mark chapter 4 is the story of the mustard seed. It's one place you get the kingdom, both present and future. The mustard seed is the tiniest seed, right? And he says the kingdom is like this tiny seed. It's present, but it seems insignificant. You ignore it but it grows into this huge plant that overtakes everything. That's the kingdom. Right now, it's in its smallest form, but it's coming. And someday it's going to come in its fullness. You say, okay, Nick, that's all great. So what? Well, let me tell you so what. Two implications I want to talk about today. The first is this. We must see Jesus as king and bow to him as Lord. Okay? When Jesus comes on the scene, what's he say? He says the kingdom is near and what's the response he's expecting? Repent. Why does he see repent? say repent? We, we typically think repentance as a kind of moral reformation. Repent of your sin. But in Mark chapter 1, he doesn't say repent of your sin. He, he says repent. Repent is a word that is metanoia, and it means to, to turn around, to go 180, 
degrees the opposite direction. Leslie Newbigin tells a story. He's visiting a little village in, in India, in the Madras section of India. And there's no roads into this village. It's out in a rural country. And you've got to cross a river. And you can either cross the river on the north side or you can cross the river on the south side. And they thought he was, he was a big deal he was coming to this village. So they set up in the south because they thought he was crossing from the south. They set up this huge celebration and fireworks and meals and dancing and everybody's waiting for him. And he comes in from the north. And all he sees is chicken and goats. <laughs> Somebody got wind that he was uh, coming in the wrong direction. So he had to go hide for a while. <laughs> and they moved, they, they, they repented. They met annoyed. They changed direction. They went to the north side of the village. See, Jesus is saying, look, I'm here. And that needs to change everything. You've expecting, you've, you're thinking about God in this way and you're expecting this, but that's all different. God's rule and reign is breaking in and the fact that God is here now and his authority here now and the kingdom is here now has to change everything about your allegiance and your passions and what your focus is and what your priority is because now you have to, to live for the king. You need to change your thinking about your thinking because you've been loving for yourself, but now because the kingdom's here, you've got to live for the king. That's why you have to present Jesus in the context of the kingdom because it's bigger than just him. See, all of us have a framework in terms of how we see Jesus. We can see him as our personal friend. We can see him as our savior. We see him as a Lord. Sometimes we see him as king. But what I'm suggesting to you, if you understand the kingdom, then the only framework, the, the prime framework, you have to see him as as king and what we've done in our culture is we have presented jesus as our personal savior and jesus is our personal savior but we miss we misunderstand what it means to be a savior if you do a word study in the word sozo save what you discover in the new testament is that all kinds of things are saved you're saved from demons you're saved when, when you're healed you're, you're, you're saved when, you, when you're rescued. You're saved from eternal damnation. You're saved and you're forgiven sin. But it's this big term. So when we say Jesus is Savior, we're really not saying, well, Jesus is all about just saving you. We're saying, no, Jesus came and died on the cross to save the universe, to save the cosmos, to defeat evil, to defeat death. That's the kind of salvation that happened. And yes, you get to take advantage of that. But to simply say he's my personal savior reduces it from what it really is all about. Savior is huge. In fact, in the New Testament, we don't refer, you don't see Jesus referred to as savior as much as you see him referred to as Lord. Right? 16 times Jesus is referred to as savior. He's referred to as Lord over 400 times. It's not about him just it's not just about you. It's about him. And think of the difference. If you begin to see Jesus as king and not just as savior, it changes the whole paradigm of your faith. When you see Jesus as savior, it's really about you. Him doing something for you. But when you see him as king, you realize, oh, it's not about me. It's about him, me doing something for him. When, when, when you talk about somebody save, saving you, that doesn't demand your allegiance. When you talk about somebody being your king, it demands your allegiance. When you talk about someone being your savior, that's a one-time event. They can save you, but if you talk about them being your king, that's an ongoing commitment. You see, kingship means 
He gets priority. Kingship means he gets allegiance. Kings have agendas. Kings are a... Well, kings have realms and rules and obedience becomes important and suddenly the whole paradigm changes. Now you understand you're part of something bigger because Jesus is in the context of his kingdom and he's bringing about his rule and reign and suddenly it gives you a focus for your life and something to live for because now... It's not just about what he can do for you. It's about him saving you so that you can save others and become part of this huge agenda of changing history for his kingdom. It gives you a reason to live and a mission in life. And it makes us part of something much, much bigger than ourselves. We can't miss the fact that Jesus is king. And we miss it all the time. Do you know, for instance, when we say the Lord Jesus Christ, do you understand that that is a kingdom statement? Uh, um, Jesus is Jesus' proper name. And in his day, he was known either as Jesus ben Joseph, Jesus the son of Joseph, or Jesus of Nazareth. They'd call him Jesus of Nazareth because he was a bastard. All right? Later on, he's known as, as Jesus the Christ. Well, Christ is a, a Greek word that doesn't get translated into our language, and it literally means anointed one. And it's a way of talking about the Old Testament Messiah. Well, the anointed, who got anointed? Kings. The Messiah, that's the Old Testament king. When you say Jesus is the Christ, what you're really saying is Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Christ is not his last name. It's a title of his royalty. And once you understand that Jesus is the king, then it makes sense to call him Lord because what Lord is, is it's an admission of submission. When you call someone your Lord, you bow your knee. You see, and suddenly when you understand this kingdom perspective, you bend your will and bend everything to King Jesus. We've even wrestled with this in our our, uh, children's department. Because all the curriculum that you get for kids, they present Jesus as friend. Now Jesus is your friend, but he's not your buddy. This is not a friendship between equals. Jesus is first of all the cosmic king, the sovereign king of the universe, who happens out of his graciousness to befriend you. It's not co-equals. And when we teach little kids that Jesus is their buddy, Jesus is their friend, we've already planted the seed that it's really about you. When it's not really about you, it's really about him. And it always has been. Second implication. Not only was we see Jesus king and bend to him as Lord, but... uh, bow to him as Lord, we need to understand we live in the midst of the now and the not yet. What do I mean? The kingdom is present. And we live in the midst of it and in the midst of this cosmic conflict. But do you know the moment that you accept Jesus, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Now you are a kingdom person. And that's why our primary agenda is to what? Seek first the kingdom of God. 
So we live in the midst of the now and not yet. And what that means is in our life, uh, the kingdom sometimes suddenly breaks in. At my house, we don't have cable. We have an antenna. And when you have an antenna and it begins to snow or rain, the transmission of the digital signal gets messed up. And when you have a digital antenna, you either get a signal and get a picture or you get snow. And we're watching something, and Channel 6 is the worst, man. I'm really into Downton Abbey, and all of a sudden, because it's raining out, it goes blank. And it's intermittent. That's kind of like the kingdom. There are times when we have a sense of God's presence and a sense of his reality and the kingdom is breaking in and we see it and we feel it and we taste it and we touch it and it's just amazing. And there are other times when God seems to be nowhere around. I mean, isn't that the frustration of the Christian life is we want to experience more and more of God, but it's intermittent. The kingdom isn't always present. That's why some people, you pray and they get healed and sometimes they don't. That's why some miracle, sometimes miracles happen and sometimes miracles don't. It's why some demons can be cast out and others, it doesn't seem to have an impact because the, the kingdom is just breaking in at times, but not all the time. It's fascinating. I was reading the biography of Mother Teresa, and she talks about the fact, I don't know if you, you know, she started the, the, her ministry in Calcutta when she's in her 40s. And before that time, she had these ecstatic spiritual experiences where the kingdom just broke in on her like crazy. She starts her ministry amongst the poor, and those disappear. They happen a few times after that, but nothing consistent. And she's so frustrated. In fact, the prayer of her life becomes, God, why won't you help me know your presence? And she wrestled with that until the end of her life. I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, you know what happened? It's my, this is my conjecture, all right? Kingdom was breaking in, giving her a static experience. God was present. It was awesome. And then she started her ministry, and she became the sign of the kingdom. Because she'd go amidst the poor and she'd exercise compassion and she'd show them God's mercy and God's love and she became the sign of the kingdom. You see, we live in the now and not yet. There are times when we'll experience the kingdom present in our lives. But the calling on us is to be signs of the kingdom. To go into dark places and to be light. To go into the lives of hurting people and exercise compassion. To care about those that nobody cares about because we're signposts of the kingdom. You begin to understand the kingdom and it changes everything. My challenge for you this week is to put on kingdom glasses, okay? In other words, see life, see scripture, see your own relationship with God through kingdom glasses. And to help you remember to do that, we're going to give you a little gift when you go. It's one of those micro cloths, and it says on it, see the kingdom. It's to clean glasses with, because we want you to see clearly, all right? Think about the kingdom this week.